0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to be. In this particular session, we're going to be looking at the name uh, Jehovah Nissi. Uh, which means Yahweh or the Lord is my banner. And when you hear the word banner, uh, I don't know what you think of. Uh, We don't typically call things banners uh, in our modern day. In other words, we have banners. You know, we we put some big slogan on the wall. Uh, But a banner in the ancient days was much more like what we would call a flag. Uh, It was a standard. It was an emblem. It was a a picture of something uh, or symbolic of something more than just the thing itself. Uh, in other words, uh, if you ever watch the Olympics, right, as, as the Olympians are walking into the arena, typically uh, they're wearing their colors. Uh, sometimes they're actually wearing the flag, right? If if you win the sport, <clears throat> then your flag goes up on the pole and they do the national anthem stuff. And 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 there is this, it's an emblem thing. It's, it's a banner. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw, and maybe you shouldn't recommend the movie, <laughs> but I don't know if you ever saw the movie Patriot. Uh, it's a little... Gruesome, uh, But it's time of the Revolutionary War, and it's interesting, there's this great scene toward the end uh, where there's this major battle between the British and the, and the Americans, the colonies, and Mel Gibson, uh, the standard, the, the flag has fallen down, and so he grabs it and starts ho- hoisting it up and starts running into the fray. And there's there's this interesting tension or this interesting picture that comes with this idea of a banner or a a flag or a standard or an ensign, right? Those are just different words for the same idea. And as you come into Exodus 17, there is this idea that God himself, one of his names, is that he is my banner, uh, that he is the flag, uh, that he is the standard, that, that he is that thing that you raise up. So before we even get into Exodus 17, I just want to lay some foundation stuff uh, in terms of a banner or a standard. Uh, This is what one author wrote about this idea of a banner. She said, ancient armies carried standards or banners that served as marks or identification, sorry, of identification and as symbols that embodied the ideals of a people. A banner like a flag was something that could be seen from afar serving as a rallying point for troops before a battle. We know that banners were used in Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia, and the Israelites apparently carried them on their march through the desert. Unlike fabric flags, ancient banners were usually made out of wood or metal and shaped into various figures or emblems that could be fastened to a bare staff or a long pole. Often depicting birds, animals, or gods, they often glistened brightly in the sun so they could be seen from afar off. A banner carried at the head of an army or planted on a high hill served as a rallying point for troops before battle or as an announcement of a victory already won. Let me just give you one other statement. Uh, Tony Evans said this, banners have been important throughout history as visible declarations of authority. Banners are often hung or waved to declare commitment, allegiance, and victory. As you study the idea of banners throughout history, uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways that a banner or a standard was used. And I just want to give you three of the the most common. One way that this idea of banners were used is in the sense to identify a group. And we even see that in in the the story of of the Exodus and, and the wandering in the wilderness. If you remember the scene, especially in the book of Numbers, Moses is counting off the off the tribes and he mentions that here's the tabernacle in the middle of the encampment and all around them is the 12 tribes of Israel and you know there's three tribes to the north and three tribes to the east and three tribes to the south and three three tribes to the west and it's interesting as as you look at each of the 12 tribes of Israel all of them had their own standard so each of the 12 tribes had a banner or a standard that was fixed on a pole, and it was a picture of that tribe. Does that make any sense? Um, and a lot of it came out of the Jacob blessing in Genesis chapter, I think it's 49, chapter 50, something like that. And uh, for example, there, there was a standard of an ox. Uh, there was a standard of an eagle. There's a standard of a wolf. There's a standard of like waters in, 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 the, in the waters uh, ocean kind of things. Uh, Judah is probably the most popular one, right? And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? And you've probably heard that. And so here's the tribe of Judah, and they were all marching on under the battlement of this flag or this banner or this pole or the standard, and their picture as the tribe of Judah was a lion. Does that make sense? You guys awake? Okay, just checking. So, so you had these 12 tribes in, and it was identifier, the, the, the standard was the identifier for that tribe. Uh, and I, th- I think I mentioned this to you before, but if you ever go to Israel, and in the allotments of the land, each of the 12 tribes had their picture, and on the sewer covers of that part of Israel, of modern-day Israel, there is that picture of the standard, right? So if you go to the areas of Judah, you'll see on the sewer co- covers the picture of a lion. Why? Because it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's that kind of an idea. So in ancient Israel, they would march under the banner of whatever the picture was, and you would see this all throughout ancient, uh, ancient history. Another way that this was used, the idea of a banner or a standard, was to claim possession of a space or a territory. In other words, to raise a banner was to declare victory. So there's the idea of like planting a flag. In other words, I, hey, this is, this is my place, this is my territory, hey, this is my victory. Uh, another way it was used to, was in the sense of directing a path or a route to a city, so it was like road signs. So as you're walking on the road, you would see the banners and you're going, like, oh, I'm headed in the right direction. And then it was also used to mark off the boundaries to a country. So again, you had this idea of the banner was used to identify a group. You have this idea of to claim a possession or to mark off the boundaries of a territory or a space. And then it was also used, and I love this idea, to lend festivity to a celebration. Uh, we still do this, right? If you have a birthday party, uh, you, you typically buy those banners, which says, happy birthday, or you're getting really old, right? Depending on how old you are, <laughs> right? And so what do we do? We, we put up, right? We, we put up the little hats and the little uh, little flaggy things, right? You've seen these happy birthday things, haven't you? Don't look at me this way. You, you, you probably have this in your dorm room. Uh, but right, you, you, have these, you have these banners, and what is it? It lends to the festivity. It lends to the party. And, and listen to this passage. I love, I love this from Song of Solomon. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. What is this? This is a celebration, and there is a banner being put up. And the woman in the the Song of Solomon says, Wow, do you realize that the banner that he put up for the celebration, it wasn't just a banner, it was love. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus in the church. So those are the three primary ways that this idea of a standard or a banner is used, but let me just talk really briefly about how the banner was used in a military sense. So when you look at the idea of using a banner or a standard in military, it was often a rallying point or this high point that was lifted up where everyone gathered to go out to battle. Uh, It was used to direct and control the movements of the military. In other words, you followed the banner, which is why in the the Patriot, uh, there's that scene where he's grabbing that flag and he's leading the charge into the battle. Why? Why? because you follow the flag, right? If there's a retreat, you know it's a retreat because the flag is leaving. And you're like, I'm following. But if it's heading into the battle, do you realize that means I am to follow that directive? I am to march into the fray. Uh, It was used, or the presence of the banner uh, had the sense of providing peace and safety. In other words, when I saw the banner, I knew that things were gonna be okay. I could be in the middle of a battle, and as long as the standard was there, I knew that we were, we're doing okay. Hey, the, the battle's being won. And I if you just want to as a side note, do you realize that the person who held the flag or the banner, do you realize what an important position that is and how hard that had to have been? Because if you're holding a banner, it's really hard for you to also fight. And so there was a great trust in the guys around you that as you kept pushing the banner forward, that they would keep following you to protect you to keep pushing the banner forward.) <laughs> Okay. But there was this idea of peace and safety associated with it. Uh, It was also connected with the authority of a king. In other words, wherever the banner went, that's where the authority of the king was going. And there was this neat idea that it's a symbol of victory. Uh, In other words, uh, if I I take over the castle, what do I do? The moment I storm the castle, I take my flag and I hoist it up. Meaning what? This is now under my authority. Uh, This is now my victory. If you ever, you know, watch the pirate movies, right? This pirate ship comes over, takes over this ship. And what does the pirate ship do? What do the pirates do? They hoist their flag on the pirate or on, on the ship that they've taken over. Why? Because it's a, it's a symbolic of victory. I, hey, this is our ship now. Does that make sense? So those are some different ways that this idea of the banner is used from a military sense. Now take all of that and, and come into Exodus chapter 17. Uh, a couple of... A couple sessions ago, uh, we were looking at Exodus 15 and God's name, Jehovah Rapha. And if you remember the scene, uh, they've come three days out of the Red Sea, from the Red Sea. Uh, They're out in the middle of the desert, and they are desperate for water. Oh, there's some water right here, but it is twisted, bitter water. And so they cry out to God, and God shows them a tree. and, And I don't know if I mentioned this, but there's this beautiful thought that God says, take this tree, plant it into the midst of death, this twisted bitterness, and do you realize the tree was a tree of life and it brought life in the midst of the death? It's a beautiful picture of Jesus. And we walked through that the other day. As you get two chapters later, so that was chapter 15. As you, as you walk two chapters later, we're in a very similar scene in Exodus chapter 17. And, and what you see in Exodus 17 then is at the beginning of this, they have no water. <laughs> Seems like a similar problem. And so they start to moan and they start to complain against Moses. Moses, we have no water. What are we going to do? Hey, we're about to die out here. Hey, what's your plan? And so God led Moses to do the whole rock thing. And so they they hit the rock and the water gushes from the rock. And just as a fun side note, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 10 verse 4 that do you know what that rock was a picture of? Jesus that he is that living, sustaining water from the rock. And so you have this great scene that here, here are the Israelites. Now they're, they had a little bit of water before, but it was bitter. Now they have no water. What are we going to do? They won't complain, and God gives them water from the rock. Now, immediately after that, if you can imagine this, in verse 8, it says this. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So imagine the scene. God has just led us out of the Red Sea. God just got us out of Egypt. And we get to the bitter waters, and we moan and we complain because we need water. God solves that problem. And then he gives us the man in the wilderness and the quail and the bush and all that kind of stuff. And here we are, now we need water again. And we, what do we do? We start complaining. They have a problem. <laughs> and there's this overwhelming lack of faith in the provision of their Lord. And finally, God solves the water issue again. And now they're like, oh, oh, God's with us. Praise the Lord. We're at peace. And suddenly, this enemy shows up. And there's some, I don't have time to flesh it out, but there is some profundity in the fact of these enemies, whether it's on the inside whether it's the sustaining thing with the water and the food or whether it's an outside enemy, that God is consistently asking the Israelites, will you trust me? Will you walk in faith? Hey, will you seek my provision? So here they are in another situation and the Amalekites have come out to fight against Israel. Now, you guys are very astute and you probably know who the Amalekites are, but for everybody else, let me explain who they are. And I'm just going to read this. This is one of the uh, uh, commentator, a scholar on The Amalekites. Uh, Amalek, according to Genesis 36, 12, was a grandson of Esau. So we had Esau and Jacob and the grandson of Esau was Amalek. And his descendants organized themselves into a very early national nomadic group. Balaam in Numbers 24, 20 calls them the first among the nations. And they lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. The Amalekites had domesticated the camel and used its swiftness effectively in surprise attacks. And not only did the Amalekites attack Israel at Rephidim, but a year later, they attacked them again at Hormah when the Israelites had been driven out of southern Cana and were on the run after their foolish attempt to enter the promised land in spite of God's command through Moses that they could not enter. So you have this idea that here are these Amalekites and of all the people who should actually probably be supportive of Israel, because they're family, distant family. But hey, these remember our far forefather Jacob and his brother Esau? Yeah, we're, we're sort of relatives. And yet here's Israel and they're trying to pass through. And Amalek says, no, no, you, you will not cross through our land. And, and the Amalekites come out and they begin to fight Israel. And so what you begin to see then, as you're walking through this, and I just wanna read the passage, is that there's this massive battle. Now, I want you to pay attention to the battle and the banner. So here's Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. It says that Amalek came and fought against Israel at the Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him, to fight against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it happened when Moses raised his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. So then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and her supported his hands one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in Joshua's hearing. Then I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Jehovah Nissi. Yahweh is my banner. And he said, because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Really interesting story. Imagine this scene. The Amalekites are out here ready to fight. And so Moses looks at Joshua and says, all right, Josh, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down there and you are gonna fight them. And I am gonna take the staff of the Lord and I'm gonna go up on the mountain and I will hold it up and it will be a symbolic banner of the presence of the Lord. And when you see the staff, you will know that the Lord is running victorious. So here's Moses, he goes up, up, up on top of the hill. He's looking down at the battle, and he takes the staff of the Lord. Remember, this is the staff that was turned into a snake. This was the staff that parted the Red Sea. This was the staff in Egypt that caused the miracles, right? The plagues and all that kind of stuff. This has been symbolic of the presence of the Lord up to this point. And so Moses takes the staff, and he raises it in the air. And by the way, there's a lot of neat biblical concepts with what happens when you raise your hands. So you need to study that out. But there's this idea of praise. There's this idea of dependence. uh, There's this idea of surrender biblically when your hands are raised. So Moses takes the staff and raises his hands and he's really holding his hands up in the battle. And then begin to notice that when his hands are up, which means his flesh is weak, the battle down below is victorious. But when his hands grow tired and he lowers the hands, do you realize that the Amalekites begin to win the battle? And so Aaron and Her, who's really a hymn, right? They, that's probably not as much funny in, the, in our culture anymore, but I think that's awesome. But Aaron and Her, right? H U R, right? Who is a man, okay? But Aaron and Her say, okay, well, here's the plan. We are actually going to hold Moses' hands up so that God will prevail, so that the standard is seen, and so that the battle is won. There was this uh, author who wrote a book in the, in the 1900s. and this is what he said and I'll come back to the twos idea, because I want to tie this all in but this is what he said I uh, had a great name, by the way, Nathan Stone. Uh, but in his classic book on the names of God, he said, the lesson is quite clear: The rod, the staff, was the symbol and the pledge of God's presence and power. Lowered, it could not be seen. It was as though God were not present, and therefore not in the mind of the people. So he says, do you realize it's pretty clear? When the standard was raised up, you would see it, you knew that God's presence was there, and woo, the battle was won. And I have no, I have no problem with that statement. But I think there's a greater prof- profundity happening in the passage. And it goes back to something that we constantly hearken to, which is the idea of the twos. When you look at this idea in Scripture, and we're just going to gloss over this, but God has constantly given us twos in Scripture. And what's interesting, and you you guys have heard this countless times, but the first is always a picture of the flesh. The second is always a picture of the Spirit. Uh, For example, you have the first Adam, right, after the flesh. You have the second Adam, Jesus, who's a picture of the Spirit. Uh, You have Esau and Jacob. Uh, You have Cain and Abel. You have goats and sheep, right? You have all these pictures, uh, the five virgins who did not have oil, and the five virgins who did have oil. There's, there's all these sets of two all throughout the scriptures. Uh, you have Saul, the first king, who looked like a king, acted like a king. I mean, he was, he was a king, but he's a picture of the flesh. You have David, who is the second, who's a picture of the spirit. So you have again, you have all these pictures of flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. When you walk through that idea, there are these symbolic characters, esau the first is a picture of the flesh there's a reason why god several times says i actually hate esau and you could go oh god's not supposed to hate anything he's a god of love no he hates sin he hates that which symbolizes the flesh and so god looks at what esau represents and says i hate that i I am i'm against the flesh does that make sense why? Because he's always for the Spirit. So think about this. You have the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? The grandson of Esau. So you have Esau, who's a picture of the flesh. And do you realize that the flesh only gives birth to the flesh? The flesh cannot produce anything of the Spirit. Uh, Isaiah tells us that, that the, the best the flesh can produce is but filthy rags. The flesh can only birth the flesh. So you have the Amalekites who are a picture of the flesh. It's the fruit of the flesh. So ponder this story. In Exodus 17, you don't just have a battle of the Amalekites and the Israelites. You do, but there's a greater picture. It is a battle of the flesh versus the spirit. Does that make sense? You tracking? So there's this, the whole storyline in Exodus 17 is the the battle of flesh and spirit. Now, you've heard this, but Galatians chapter five, Paul says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire or it wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you do not do the things you want to do. Paul says Recognize something. The flesh and the spirit are always at battle. The flesh and the spirit are always in opposition. You cannot ride this fence. You cannot be like, well, I'm gonna be full of the spirit and I'm gonna live for myself. That, that's impossible. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna live by the power of Christ and I'm gonna live in sin. What are you talking about? Because these are at, in opposition. You tracking? No, pause. I mentioned this before in in other studies, but what is happening in the physical of the Old Testament is a picture of what is now happening in the internal reality, in the spiritual realm of your life in the New Covenant. So again, in the Old Testament, we have physical battles. We have physical wars. In the New Testament, right in the New Covenant, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities, mights, powers, mights, and dominions in the spiritual realms. And do you realize, again, that what is happening physically of the Old, in the Old Testament, what actually happened, it's historical, it's literal. I'll fight you on that one. I know that's not scary, but I will, I will do what I can. And then bring the Nacella twins in with me. And then get the Rileys. Okay? <laughs> that's, that should be scary. Okay, But do you realize that, that the, what's happening in the physical of the Old Testament becomes a foreshadow or a picture of a greater reality that's now happening inside of you. Do you know that there is a battle raging inside of you and it's between the flesh and the spirit and they are in opposition to one another? And you will either be overcome by the flesh or the spirit will overcome that. And you can't stay neutral. You're going to have to give in to someone. So imagine this scene again. You have this battle And yes, it actually took place. And yes, there were actually Amalekites. And yes, there were literal Israelites. But there is a symbolic reality happening. What is it? It's the battle of the flesh and the spirit. And isn't it interesting? This is so fascinating to me. That here's Moses. He goes up on the mountain. And he takes the staff. And when he himself was in a position of physical weakness. Have you ever tried holding your hands up for a long period of time? Uh, when I was in like, I think it was in early high school. I probably shouldn't should say these stories. Uh, but when I was in early high school. I, I spent a whole season, and we were doing like puppet ministry, which now sounds so weird in my head. It just sounds—I don't, I don't know. But I love voices. I love—I love accents. And so the whole idea of puppets were just delightfully fun because you could create these personas. Uh, and we were—we had to train ourselves to hold our hand up for like an hour. Because if you were doing a full you know, thing, you, you had to keep your hand up and, and do the little doohickeys, right? And do you know how hard that is on your, on your muscles? Could you imagine a battle for an entire day, holding up a staff? Now, the staff probably didn't weigh that much. I remember my mother telling me when she was in elementary school, for punishment, uh, the teacher would make you stand in the corner and hold a paperclip. And at first I was like, Seriously, that's not that impressive. Just try it. That paperclip becomes heavy. Because you're, you're holding it and you're like, oh, it's just a paperclip. It's like a gram. <laughs> you know? But then after about 10 minutes, you're like, oh! Right? Does that, that, that make sense? So could you imagine, here's Moses and he holds a staff, which probably, I mean, it, it weighs a bit, but it's, it's not, he's not carrying 50 pounds, but he has his staff and he holds it up and he's holding his hands up before the Lord, and he's in a posture of physical weakness. And while he is physically weak, do you realize the pitcher of the flesh on the battle is actually weakened? Does that make sense to you? The Amalekites began to lose, who are pitcher of the flesh, when Moses' physical flesh was in a position of weakness. When he would try to gain strength by lowering his hands, then the flesh... Gain strength. I find that incredibly fascinating in the story. And maybe you can do whatever you want with that. You could walk through a whole bunch of different principles in this passage. Uh, for example, you, you could give some practical application in the sense of do you realize how important it is for us to have people in our lives to help us hold our hands up? You need an Aaron and a her who's a him. Okay. And that's true, that, that, that there's a great principle in that. Uh, there, there's a wonderful principle in this fact that the battles that we fight, do you realize that there is, it's being fought both in the valley and on the mountain? That there's this principle that, that we need God in the battle, but you're also doing the fighting. That there's this duality in, in, the, in, in the Christian life. That I am fully obedient to Christ, and yet it is his power in and through me that sources and enables me to do what he calls me to do. It's not one or the other. And there's I'm not passive and God does everything. And I'm just like, okay, lift my arm. That's not the Christian life. There, there's this combination of me living and walking by faith and him bringing this reality to bear in my life. It's his energy and his spirit and, and his grace and his power, but he's doing it through me. And there's a duality in the battle. That that there's a valley where the battle's taking place, but there's also the mountain thing. Does this make any sense? So you you could, there's a whole bunch of neat principles that you can run with. I just want to focus on one. And if I may summarize it, it's this: Jesus is Jehovah Nisi. Jesus is our banner. Again, every name of God ultimately points to the reality of Jesus Christ. It showcases his grandeur and majesty, the wonder of who he is. And when you look at the name Jehovah Nisi, do you recognize that it is all about Jesus? There's this phenomenal passage. It's a messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Listen to how cool this passage is in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Isaiah says this, It will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse. Now, pause. The root of Jesse. Now, that term, right? This idea that he is the branch, that he is the root, right? That that he is is the thing that's coming out, right? It's referring to the whole netzer idea. You've heard that. There's that whole concept that is fleshed out later in Jeremiah and Zechariah that Jesus, the Messiah, is the root of Jesse, that he is the branch, Remember all this? So think about this. This is speaking about Jesus. That the root of Jesse will stand as a standard, as a Nisi for the peoples. Do you know who Jesus is? He is the standard. He is that which draws people together. He, He is the coming one. In fact, Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus, said this in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Do you know what the serpent was on? It was on a pole. It was on a standard. And, and we don't have time to get into this story, but you, you know this story, right? That there's, they're wandering in the wilderness. The fiery serpents, right? These, all these poisonous snakes. <laughs> Sounds miserable. Uh, are coming into the camp and they're killing everyone. And so they start to complain to Moses. And Moses goes to God and God says, hey, I want you to take a bronze image of those serpents and put it on a pole. And when you get bit, you can look at the pole and you will be saved. And you're like, that is the dumbest solution in the world. But Jesus says, do you know what that was all about? Me. And just as the sign of the curse, the serpent that only brought forth death was put on a standard and on a pole and lifted up, Jesus said to Nicodemus, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Do you know what Jesus was put upon? A cross. But in one strange sense, do you realize that that cross was a banner? It was a standard. It was lifted up. Something was upon that standard that brought life in the midst of death. Jesus is... He doesn't just give a banner, he is the banner. Do you realize that the cross was a place of victory over death? And In other words, the cross was a declaration that sin and flesh no longer had authority and power. Let me just give you a couple passages really quick. John 16, 33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. What is Jesus doing? He brings victory. He's that standard that is raised up in the middle of a battle that says there is victory. There, there is, Hey, yeah, you can actually have peace. Why? Because the standard is here. Hey, that banner is smack dab in the middle of your tribulation, which means even in the middle of a war scene, you can actually walk in a security and a peace. Why? Because there's a banner. His name is Jesus. And he's already overcome the battle. Or Romans chapter 8, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? But in these things, because he gives that whole list, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I love that phrase. He, you overwhelmingly conquer conquer the way you probably heard it is this way yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us do you realize that in jesus you overwhelmingly conquer you are more than a conqueror well who's a conqueror napoleon alexander the great these guys went into the world and conquered and paul says in jesus you're more than that why because he's he's the standard he's already won the battle You fight under the banner of Jesus Christ, which means the battle has already won. What would happen if you brought that into your tribulations and your trials and your addictions and your habits and your thought processes and your whatever, and you begin to realize that there has been a cross that has been planted in the middle of everything and he has won the battle. He has defeated death and hell and the grave and sin that I can actually be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Why? Because I've got Jesus, and he is Jehovah Nissi in my life. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven, Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, thanks be to God who always, do you know what the word always in Greek means? It means always. Think about this. Thanks be to God who always, leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. He's talking about the Roman procession when they would come back from a battle. But there is great victory. And we always have that in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is that banner. He is that standard that we live and fight under. So think about this, if I can go back. There's there's so much depth to this. I I really wish we had like hours to flush out each of these names. But again, we're just giving quick overviews. When you go back to this idea of how the banners were used, again, it was used to identify a group. It was used to claim possession of a space or a territory, and it it to a festivity or a celebration. Do you realize that's all Jesus? That, that in Jesus, he is our identity? We're called Christians. That, that in him, he claims us as his possession. He plants a flag in the middle of your life and says, that's mine, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That our lives are not our own. He has bought us with a price. He has raised his banner over us and he has planted his flag saying, that is mine. And isn't it neat to think that he is our joy and celebration? That he is that banner over us that is known as love? That as Psalm 16 verse 11 says, that he is the fullness of joy in our lives? He is Jehovah And if you remember all those military usages of this term banner, do you realize that all also applies to Jesus? For example, that he doesn't just give us a banner, he is our banner. That Jesus is our rallying point. That Jesus directs and controls the movement of the church because he is the head. That he is to control your life. We are to follow him. He's our safety and our peace. He's our victory. We are to find our identity in him. He becomes the boundary Just like a a standard was the boundary for a country, guess what? He becomes the boundary for your life. What can I do? Whatever's in that boundary. Paul says, think on these things. Well, what are the things we're to think on? It's all about Jesus. He's the boundary for your life, that he is to be the focus, that we follow him into the spiritual battle. He is our joy and celebration. Do you recognize Jesus is Jehovah Nissi in the flesh? He is that banner what would it look like if we lived under that reality? What would it look like if if I fought my, my battles under the banner of Christ? What if it wasn't about my strength and my wisdom and my talent and my whatever, but I began to realize that he doesn't just merely provide the victory. He is the victory, but he's the banner over that victory. He is that thing that is raised up to say, look at it. That is the symbol of our victory. That is our hope. That is our security. That is our peace. That's who he is. Can I encourage you in that battle that is raging within you between the flesh and the spirit? And they are opposed to one another. Would you let Jesus come in the middle of all that and bring death to your flesh? We're not talking physical. We're not talking this stuff. Because God made this and called it good. But that sinful, selfish propensity is not to have rule and control of your life. The Amalekites are supposed to die. It's not by accident that God looked at Saul, the first king, and says, you need to utterly destroy the Amalekites. All of it has to go. And he failed to do it. Do you realize that God is trying to remove something in your life, which is sin, that selfish propensity? Well, how's that going to take place? What if you allow the banner of our Lord to be planted in the middle of your situation, in the middle of your sin, In the middle of your circumstances, would you allow him to be raised up and allow him in his victory, which has already fought and won the battle, by the way, but would you allow that to be the reality of your life? Would you live under the banner known as Jesus Christ? Would you let him be your identity? Would you let him be the boundary? You are his possession. Would you let him be your joy in life? He is Jehovah Nisi. Pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you that you have won the victory. That we don't have to ask you for a victory. You've already won it. Lord, could we somehow, as the people of your possession, could we just live under the reality that you are Jehovah Nisi in our lives. That you are the banner, that you are the standard, that you, that you are that thing that we are to look upon in the middle of our battles, and in the middle of our temptations, in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our circumstances. Lord, you are t- we are to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That, that, that we need to realize that, that you have won the victory, that you have put the flag up and have claimed the authority and the territory over our lives. Lord, can we fully submit under that banner? Lord, would you be our identity? May we fully recognize and reckon the reality that we are the possession, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been bought with a price. And Jesus, could you, like the Song of Solomon says, where the woman is just awed by the fact that the banner that is over her, this banner of celebration, is love. Lord, you are love itself. And you are to be our joy. You are to be our celebration. You are to be our delight. You are to be our life. And Lord, with that as a reality, Lord, I want to worship you. I don't want to sing songs. I don't want to go through an emotion. I don't want to just go through the the ritual of of a worship. Lord, I just want to stand back and go, wow, you are worthy. Because you are. And so, Lord, could somehow, would you bubble up from the depths of my being and could something come out of my mouth that would just sing forth the wonder and the praise of, of you because you rightly deserve it because you are my banner. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.